Hello, and welcome to Ask Dr. Dawn. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers, and this is a program intended for education and entertainment. It should not be construed as a substitute for a medical consultation. This week on Ask Dr. Dawn, we'll be discussing the black cloud over dark chocolate and the truth about chiropractors. I want to start with a few emails. These were all people who chose to go to the website, askdrdawn.com, and send an email there by clicking the Contact Us button. You're always welcome to do that. So let's start out with this email from Larry in Carmel. Larry writes, Ocular Melanoma. What do you know about this eye cancer? Are there treatments besides removal of the effective eyes? Alternative theories, thera- uh, therapies? Well, what, what can I tell you? Well, I can tell you quite a bit. First of all, I'm going to answer the question, yes, there are other treatments. We're going to talk about those in just a moment. Uh, with respect to alternative therapies, I generally would use the phrase complementary rather than alternative uh, when dealing with cancer. And that probably you should know. I'm a board-certified family physician, so I maybe have a little more knowledge about oncology and cancer than the average chiropractor. So uh, no, no offense to the chiropractors out there, but what that level of education has taught me is don't mess around with cancer. And once it's got rolling, it's kind of a runaway train. And the you know stories you hear of miraculous, uh, miraculous remissions, I hope some of them are true, but I think a lot of them are exaggerated. And when we do, that's this is where one of those hackneyed things, the double-blind placebo-controlled study comes in. You really need to at least do usual therapy versus whatever we're talking about here in terms of either a new therapy or an alternative therapy, and just track outcome. Anecdotal evidence just doesn't work for something like cancer. So that being said, there are some complementary things, and I'll get to those at the end of my response. First of all, melanoma can happen in the skin. It can also happen in the nasal mucosa, anywhere where there's skin. So that means the middle, the inside of the mouth, the inside of the lungs, the inside of the gastrointestinal tract. There's vaginal melanoma, there's rectal melanoma, and there's eye melanoma. And there we have several things. You can have eyelids, the eyeball itself, the uvea, uh, which is the layer that contains the color and gives you your iris, and also the conjunctiva. So uvular melanoma is going to be melanoma of the iris, the the back of the eyeball called the uh, choroid, the ciliary ciliary body, which is the uh, circular muscular muscular drawstring that opens and closes the iris according to uh, the amount of light in the room. We said that melanoma is relatively rare. Ocular melanoma is the second most common after cutaneous, and cutaneous is much more common than ocular. 
And a lo- the vast majority of the ocular melanomas occur in the iris. And uh, the annual incidence of this is about six per million. Slightly higher male to female ratio, both ocular removal and treatments that maintain the eye exist for localized ocular melanoma. So when it's just in the iris, and of course I don't know uh, any specifics about Larry's question, but so I have to cover it all. When um, it's just in the iris, they tend to do something called plaque brachytherapy. And this is where you, you preserve the eye and you use radiation like little pellets, or in this case, plaque brachytherapy, a radioactive plate that goes over the cancer. And uh, they also, if the, if the tumor's on the larger size, they'll do something called proton beam, beam radiation therapy. And it's only when the tumor is very large uh, can't and bad location that can't be reached with these other therapies that uh, removal of the eye is necessary. And even with therapy, about 50% of patients with the uveal melanomas will show up with metastases within about 15 years. That's whether you take the eyeball out or not. That's the problem with melanoma is by the time you see it, uh, it's often spread. This is why it's so important not to shave a skin melanoma and to be sure that you do a full thickness punch biopsy. Because if you think you're dealing with a superficial melanoma, uh, the depth of that melanoma really determines what the risk of metastasis are and d- dictates to us the need for doing uh, chemotherapy or CART T-cell therapy or something much more aggressive. Now, conjunctival melanoma, that's the surface of the eyeball. That's rare, but it's going up. Who knows why? It mainly occurs in uh, white adults, and usually for that, they remove the tumor because it's on the very surface of the eyeball, and you and the conjunctive is very stretchy, so you can you know, get closure, and it grows back quickly and heals. They also use cryotherapy. Sometimes they'll actually put the chemotherapeutic drugs locally, but with either uveal or conjunctival, if you get metastases, none of the systemic treatments that we use for regular melanoma are particularly useful. And with the uh, therapies that we've uh, talked about already on the show, the anti-CTLA and uh, the PD-L1 drugs, they've really changed the treatment for metastatic cutaneous melanoma. But they just don't seem to work for ocular melanoma and our understanding of the the diseases arising from a very different tissue. And clearly, the epigenetics are substantially different. And when we talk about alternative therapy, one of the things that I would recommend right away for the person who is uh, diagnosed is uh, or suspects a diagnosis is a, a product called Modified citrus pectin, and this is just a um, a kind of protein, pectin, and it's been micronized. That's what the modification is. You'd find this on the inside of an orange peel. It's a very sticky molecule, and it'll tend to stick to cancer cells 
in circulation, and this is small enough to get from the from the gut into the bloodstream. And once it gets into the bloodstream, it actually has biological activity. And the activity is to adhere to the binding regions of any cancer cells that might be floating around in your bloodstream. Those binding regions are what allow the cancer cell to stick to the wall of the blood vessel hard enough not to get washed away with each heartbeat and possibly if it has the epigenetics to do it, actually turn into a sort of amoeba-like cell and get through the blood vessel wall. Now, cancers are constantly mutating, not at the big tumor level, but at the individual components that make up the tumor. And so what characteristics any particular cell that you scrape off the surface of the tumor has is anybody's guess. The ones in the center of the tumor are probably dead unless the tumor has found a way to grow new blood vessels into it. So it's kind of an expanding ball with dead cells in the center for quite a long time. How long? With most typical speed tumors, we're talking five to 10 years before they are detected. Something like an, uh, something on the surface of the skin usually has to get to about the size of a pencil eraser before it starts showing the characteristic findings that make us want to to recognize it as a potential melanoma. So I hope that helps with uh, with your questions, and I hope it gives you some hope. There are quite a lot of therapies out there. The other thing I want to emphasize with alternative medicine is that as I said, complementary. When you're dealing with a cancer, I don't consider it an alternative. I consider it a complement that reduces side effects and provides potentially increased benefit and synergy with the various chemotherapy agents. A good example of that is intravenous vitamin C, which by its very nature is really different than oral vitamin C and actually improves the tumor-killing properties of certain chemotherapy agents. And so far as I've ever been able to discover in literature searches, is not known to interfere with the chemical properties of any of these agents. It is a pro-oxidant when you give it intravenously. And that's something a lot of people have trouble with. Our next email is from Anonymous regarding chiropractic care. Hi, Dr. Don. Can you share your opinion on chiropractic care? Specifically, do you regard chiropractic care as safe? Are there instances where you would caution an otherwise healthy adult not to engage in this form of care? Is it appropriate for short-term and long-term care? The chiropractic field seems to have a cloud of judgment and skepticism from the medical community at large, and I'm wondering how much of this is warranted. Well, I teased you guys at the beginning of the program saying I was going to give you the truth about chiropractors. It was a teaser. The truth about chiropractors is that there is no one single truth about chiropractors or, for that matter, about any group. I've seen great chiropractors, good chiropractors, and bad chiropractors. Some of them are highly ethical, honest body workers with great hands and great insight into the mechanisms of the biomechanical body. Uh, Some are hmm, highly entrepreneurial and exploit the placebo effect and 
uh, their personal charisma for all it's worth. And I will say that um, I can think of a few other medical doctors that would fit that explanation, including one whose name begins with an O and ends with a Z. Uh, Secondly, when you talk about safety in chiropractor, uh, you've got to think about the uh, exactly what are we talking about? Because there's lots, there's a broad range of therapies. There's activator devices, which are just a little spring-held thing that hits at just the right spot to cause a reflex relaxation, or at least that's the theory, uh, to forcibly cracking your back with a high-velocity, low-amplitude twist. Uh, a lot of force, but not a lot of distance applied in just the right angle to snap things back into place. And that get, brings us back to the cautions. The traditional thing that we think of when we think of chiropractic with the forcible manipulation is where I think you find most of the cautions. Now, obviously, you should have a medical diagnosis for abdominal pain that you're treating with chiropractic. Uh, You should have a medical diagnosis if you're treating headache. You should have at least been evaluated for more serious things. But known disc disease, particularly if it's at multiple levels, is a yellow light for me with chiropractic. Uh, Also, and this is a red light, if the pain is worse in bed, okay, pain that is that gets worse when you're lying down needs to be evaluated medically because that's one of the hallmarks of pain that is metastatic cancer. We already talked a little bit about that with the previous thing. You do not want to miss that because you're it's already late in the game, but you can extend your Uh, longevity and in certain cases, because we are getting really a lot better at fighting cancer, even obliterate the cancer with some of these modern therapies. If you have pain that radiates along a zebra stripe around along your body, that's called a dermatome. You can look those up. That kind of pain that zings needs to be looked at by a good uh, either an osteopath, a well-trained family physician, or a neurologist. That needs to be evaluated before you get manipulated because you can most definitely make such things worse. As far as the judgment and skepticism from the medical community, you know, doctors are a pretty judge, judgmental and a very skeptical bunch. And just being on the fringes of Anything that isn't in a you know protocol uh, from some academy of something or other already puts someone like myself outside the pale and subject to a fair amount of polite eye rolling and skepticism. Uh, you learn to live with that, but I think that's just the nature of the medical beast, and you know no one can know everything, and so I. Uh, I respond to that with compassion and uh, humility because I don't know everything either. Our next email, also from an anonymous mailer, boric acid suppositories while pregnant. 
Now, this is one of the advantages to using the Ask Dr. Don website because I can send you back a reference in the literature if I find something that I think is relevant to your question. But I can only do that if you leave me your email. You can send a message without leaving an email, but then I have no opportunity to send you something on the lowdown. So in this case, this uh, emailer will be getting an email with a link to an article about the topic of boric acid suppositories while pregnant. Let's read the question. Hi, Dr. Don. I was using boric acid suppositories to to manage vaginal pH prior to pregnancy, and I'm wondering if that is still a safe practice. I've tried vitamin C suppositories, which are safe, but they don't work as well. That's, that's right. Vitamin C is somewhat acidic, but it doesn't get the vaginal pH down to goal. And goal, by the way, is 3.8 to 4.2 pH. And that's low. Your blood pH is about 7.4, and your sperm pH is about a 7.8. Or rather, the semen is 7.8. It's full of bicarb. Some of you may have noticed the taste. But the point is that those little sperm do not like acid. Uh, The semen is there to kind of neutralize the situation so that they can get through the vagina. And in fact, some people have tried to do sexual selection with this because the Uh, more vulnerable uh, sperm, the ones that are carrying the X chromosome, tend to be a bit more acid sensitive. It doesn't really work, but, you know, people keep trying. Anyway, uh, getting back to your question, the vaginal pH is very sensitive to hormone fluctuations. And when you are pregnant, your hormone levels are 20 to 50 times higher at times during your pregnancy than they ever are during your menstrual cycle. They, there, are grad, there are fluctuations, but also there's just a whole heck of a lot of hormone in there, and it's the ratios that fluctuate. The vagina tends to fluctuate well in terms, in, as well in terms of its acidity, and as a result, you become more vulnerable to yeast bacterial vaginosis, and trichomonads, all uh, common uh, <laughs> common things that plague the vagina in the same way that upper respiratory infections plague the uh, respiratory tract, and very common. The pH is protective, and so this is why you see more yeast infections after a course of antibiotics, because In the vagina, there's a whole bunch of bacterial flora whose job there is to create a low pH. And really, using a yogurt douche or using uh, probiotic inserts is probably a better thing to be doing daily during pregnancy. But save the boric acid for treatment. If you need to treat a vaginitis, then go ahead and do that. But as you treat a a vaginitis, uh, you're going to want to use the boric acid about 600 milligrams twice a day for maybe a week. And that should be enough to knock it out and you can go back to your probiotic or yogurt douche. I think the, uh, the data on 
high-dose boric acid. Boric acid does, after all, contain boron. Uh, early on in pregnancy, when there are all sorts of organogenesis going on in the first couple of months, like the first eight weeks in particular, but we like to say through the first 12 weeks, th- this is the time when it's easier to cause a birth defect, so we tend to be more careful. That being said, uh, there's not a lot, there's no good evidence, of course, no placebo-controlled studies, and they haven't been able to induce any kind of malformation with even high doses of vaginal uh, boric acid in laboratory animals, and, you know, the amounts that you have to use in, uh, amounts you have to use in, in, uh, mice to do that is just so toxic that the mice probably die before they could carry a pregnancy anyway. So I hope that's helpful. I would say it's safe according to the NIH. And what I sent you was the, was the paper where I got all of this information. I think the evidence against is very weak. And so I'm hoping that you will uh, do it. We'll read another email, and uh, this one from Jackie. Uh, Jackie is in, uh, actually, Santa Cruz. So, hi, Dr. Don. I hope this finds you all well. We love your show so much. Thank you for all your care and sharing your knowledge with us. I believe you talked about this a million times already, but when you look at supplements, what forms are best absorbs as far as iron, calcium, magnesium? Is there... Even a quick answer to this. Yeah, pretty much. I'll give it to you. So which forms to choose for the three? Calcium, magnesium, iron, and there are so many different forms available, it's confusing. So my recommendations for iron are ferrous sulfate or ferrous fumarate. Ferrous fumarate is a little less constipating. You're looking for 50 milligrams of elemental iron, and you'll want to take that with Arceola vitamin C. That's rose hips vitamin C because that will help the absorption. You take them together, you're going to dissociate that iron from the amino acid uh, chelate, and it's going to absorb. As far as calcium is concerned, if you're going to use calcium carbonate, it needs to be liquid or chewable. Uh, Calcium carbonate, when you press it together to form a pill, turns into a little rock, and it's it's going to sort of start to melt, but you'll probably be pooping out half of your calcium dose. Also, calcium needs to be split into two doses. So a dose in the morning and a dose in the evening is the best way to do this. If you're going to use uh, calcium citrate, I think is my preferred for pills, but always do the vinegar test. Take the calcium citrate and put it in a glass of vinegar, just, you know, till it's covered. Leave it overnight and or leave it for a couple of hours at least and then push on it and see if it bursts into something. All right, so let's go now to uh, magnesium. Magnesium is tricky. Uh, Magnesium oxide, for example, that's milk of magnesia. It will cause constipation and in fact, it's intended to. And if you use magnesium oxide, you're likely to get even in combination with with a chelate uh, and by the way, chelate, it's easy to remember, it, it's magnesium something eight, A-T-E. So if you see that A-T-E, you're looking at an amino acid chelate, like glycine or taurine. And that is easier to absorb because it dissociates easier. 
I tend to th- I tend to ask people, do you have trouble sleeping uh, or staying calm, or do you have skipped heartbeats or uh, run uh, palpitations, as they're called? The palpitations people I put on the magnesium torate, and the calm sleep people I tend to put on the magnesium glycinate doses. You know, somewhere around 400 twice a day is probably as much as anyone needs uh, from the standpoint of internal magnesium, except if you're trying to really get it into the brain. If you're really trying for a high brain dose, like, for example, I know a woman with depression and ADD who takes very high doses of a form of magnesium called magteen, and this is a T-E-I-N. This is a magnesium that is essentially attached to a molecule that was created to to act as a carrier to get it across the blood-brain barrier. And so that's another strategy. Well, I also promise you the black cloud over dark chocolate. First of all, let's talk a little bit about consumer reports. Sometimes they do a good job. Sometimes they're a little self-serving. And I feel like this time with the dark chocolate, they're trying to drum up readership and sell some sell some memberships. Because this is the second time they've reported this. This is a retread. They did this in uh, they did this in December of 2022. And so you've got to ask yourself, okay, what up here? So they reported this week that out of 48 products that they tested, 16 had concerning levels of cadmium and le- or lead or both. And uh, all of these products are common, uh, common market, supermarket type brands of of chocolate, dark chocolate. So um, first of all, before you get too worried, of the 16 problematic ones, most of the others were cocoa powders and hot chocolate mixes. Now in the second report, uh, first the first report came out, Hershey, who was on the first report, got a lot of letters and uh, eventually made a, uh, there was a petition telling Hershey, clean up your act, you know, this is, you're like the chocolate maker of the country, so you can't be contaminated like this. Hershey has blamed soil contamination in press releases, and that's probably true. They're like, well, it's just naturally in the soil, so it gets picked up by the product. And my answer is yes. So the simple solution is to test every finished batch for um, issues. You've got to test, uh, I mean, I'm sure you're putting out truckloads of this stuff. Take a few, take a sample out of every truckload and test, just like we do with vaccines and with drugs. If If there's a problem with production, we figure it out. There's a lot number and we pull those lot numbers. Now, yes, is that going to add expense to your production, slow you down a little bit? Yes, but it beats having everyone walk away from your brand. I want to point out to the folks, uh, let's see, Walmart was another company whose whose proprietary brands got into trouble. I'm not trying to single out Hershey. But basically, when some crazy person adulterated Tylenol, packaging packages with cyanide and there were deaths uh, 
everybody freaked out. All of the Tylenol was pulled off the shelf in all of the pharmacies in the country. And the Tylenol people stepped forward and invented, among other things, the, our famous plastic pollution tamper-proof seal. It's there for a reason. It's there for the same reason that if you go to the Van Gogh Museum, there is glass over those wonderful paintings. And if you go to see art uh, now because of people with very, very legitimate political uh, gripes and, and political stances are essentially doing vandalism on art to get attention or because they're crazy and it's either political or crazy and it's not both. I'm not saying political people are crazy. Please don't get me wrong, but this is not the right place to go poisoning Tylenol or, you know, throwing a, uh, throwing a pie at a valuable work of art that is part of humanity's heritage. Neither of these are likely to help your cause. So, all I'm saying is clean up the chocolate, folks. I love dark chocolate, and now I'm like, okay, I'll just have it twice a week and not well pregnant, but that's at least uh, that, that ship has sailed for me, so that's one good thing at least. Speak with Dr. Don. Yes, you've got me on the air. I just picked you Thank right you. up directly. Okay, what's okay. up? What can I do for you? I'm calling. Um, a while back I called uh, to ask you, about lichen sclerosis, mm -hmm. and you mentioned that there was an over-the-counter uh, product. Actually, I, I don't think it's over-the-counter. It's prescription, but it's an antibiotic cream called Bactroban, which is M-U-P-I... Okay. ask you to... Yeah, okay. I'm going to spell it. Do you have a pencil? Slowly, yes, I have M a M-U-P-I-R-O-C-I-N. And uh, I, I learned about this from a patient who's used it very successfully. She heard about it from her dermatologist. And uh, so, and I've tried, had a few other people try it with, also with good success. I like it because it doesn't thin the skin, whereas long-term use of steroids does. It helps relieve the symptoms, but it does over time thin the skin, which is you know, not what you really need. So it's nice to have an alternative to try. I hope it works for you. All right. Thank well, you. And so and this is a, a cream and ointment? Yes. It's a, a, I think it's an ointment primarily. I don't know if it comes in a cream. It may. Thank you so much. You're welcome. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You have a great day. All right. Wait a moment. All right. We got gotcha. you. We caught you this time. Hello. <laughs> Hi, Dr. Don. Hi. That's okay. been, that's been I got fun. Two questions. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, that was, it, was, it took a while. Anyway, two questions. Sure, shoot. Uh, one, restless leg syndrome. Is that a big deal or not? Uh, well, it's sure. In, well, I guess I would say uh, in and of itself, you get to decide if it's a big deal. Your spouse may kick you out of bed. There's that. <laughs> uh, so that could be a big deal or that maybe isn't. <laughs> I won't presume to uh, comment on that. But... With respect to your own health, its major issue is that it impairs sleep. It's it's a, it's effectively a movement disorder, and ah. so there's this nice wave of paralysis that you're supposed to get as you fall asleep, 
and something's glitching in that program and it makes people antsy and need to move their legs. And yeah. so that's essentially restless leg syndrome. If it interferes with your sleep, that's bad for your health because then okay. you're not getting good deep sleep. You're not getting as much as you otherwise would. And therefore you are going to have more problems with brain health as you age and more problems with inflammation and more problems with cancer risk and a host of other things that are all tied together with those that three-legged stool of health, which is, you know, sleep, exercise, and diet. You know, and you can, yeah, you can throw a fourth leg in if you want with stress control, but really sleep, exercise, and diet. Man, if you, if you want to live a long time, you got to nail those. You, know, you can take all the okay. synolytics in the world and all the resveratrol on the planet. If you're not sleeping, you're, you're not doing yourself any favors. So okay. that's my answer. Get your ferritin checked because a lot of times this is a... What is it called? Ferritin. F-E-R-R-I-T-I-N. And that tells us if you are iron deficient. Now, we usually pick it up as anemia, right? Iron deficiency. We don't routinely check iron levels. But turns out that iron deficiency is rather more common than we realize. I've been reading some articles about it lately. And so now when someone comes in and they've got fatigue, um, I'm also checking a ferritin. Uh, ferritin is also a marker of inflammation, so it can be a little bit confusing. But I screen with a ferritin and then get a serum iron if that's low. And start okay. them on some iron, ferrous fumarate, 50 milligrams of elemental iron, once daily with RCLSC, as stated earlier. <laughs> okay, so anyway, that's my, my leg syndrome is only in the morning, and it wakes up, and sometimes it does it. My big question is, why is my ankle having a spasm? Why is my ankle hurting? My wife said... Uh, she gave me some arnica and I put her on it and everything, but my ankle can one time just be laying out there in the bed and going spasm. And it's a spasm where your toe points down, right? The what? The toe is pointing down, right? Well, I guess so. Okay. <laughs> yes, well, us- usually what's happened there is it's the calf muscle, which is pulling yeah. on the Achilles tendon that causes that pain. So my statistically probable guess for this diagnosis is that you have <laughs> yes. calf cramp that you're having calf cramping and that can go along with restless legs uh it responds quite nicely to magnesium and uh sometimes people will use uh quinine which you can which you can actually get as a prescription but at the moment it got very expensive because of all that profiteering off of orphan generics that happened uh, yes. but it's uh you can drink tonic water and get a little quinine but i really prefer to put people on magnesium most of us as we get older could use a little help in the regularity direction so the magnesium tends to uh check that box as well, but about 400, 300 or 400 magne- uh, milligrams of magnesium uh, at bedtime or with dinner, if that's easier for you to remember, will often do the trick. Are you an exerciser, sir? Uh, sort of. I walk a lot. Okay. Make sure that you keep your calves stretched. And so any history of uh, plantar fasciitis or? Nope. Okay. So... Uh, 
keeping your calves it's stretched. It's weird. It's yeah. just all of a sudden it shows up and uh, yeah. Oh, it's it's weird. In. And it's it just yeah. And you could you can but try. You're, mis- right. you're saying that you're saying the calf, and she's going do it from up here. I'm thinking it's my ankle. Right. Well, you probably have a, it's probably your ankle is overshadowing the cramp pain and you probably have a little ankle arthritis and you're just cranking that poor joint, you know, way around suddenly and yanking on it could be ligaments as well. Uh, but yeah. you've got something there that's being hurt secondarily, I think, to a calf cramp. Just reach up and grab, your, good. reach up and grab your calf next time it happens. And I think you'll see I'm right. Okay, I'm I'm of that age, seventy-eight. So yeah, why not? <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's, it's to add another <laughs> add another item to your charm bracelet, sir. <laughs> okay, thank you a lot, Doctor Don. Thank you, Jean. Bye bye. Bye. So we're going to hit uh, a few kind of odd uh, odds and ends topics, but they've been kicking around, waiting to be shared with you. So uh, let's talk about a little news of the weird. Let's talk about the fat tooth. So this comes from the 16th October Journal of Neuroscience. Uh, and people are working to understand what motivates people to, churn, to choose certain foods. In the case of rich, high-fat foods such as ice cream, it's not just that sweet taste. It's also the combination of the taste and the physical sensations they produce in the mouth. So there's uh, the, the, um, the fat tooth, if you will, that, that lovely creamy uh, feel is very important to our ability to sense fat, which is, of course, a very, very high-value food. If you're out there hunter-gathering, you know, gram for gram, fat is worth 11 calories per gram, and carbohydrates and even pure protein are only worth four calories per gram. So, you know, that's almost three times. So we have real avidity for fat, and the little pleasure centers in your brain that light up in response to the mouthfeel of fat have been identified. How they did this is interesting. Uh, <laughs> first of all, they had to figure out the quantifi- the quantification of mouthfeel feel of different fatty foods. So they used milkshakes, and they made them with varying amounts of fat and sugar. And then this is where it gets really weird. They went to the butcher, and they got two pig tongues, and then they slid the tongues back and forth across each other after coating them with different milkshakes, and they measured the amount of friction between the two surfaces. And this gave them a numerical index of each shake's smoothness. Then they took those shakes, which presumably were reasonably tasty, and gave them to 22 different participants, the same compositions as those who'd been tested on the pig tongues, and after tasting each milkshake, the participants, I love, I love, they didn't ask them which one they liked better. They said, how much would you spend to drink a full glass of this after the experiment? We've got a whole bunch of it right over there, and do I hear $5? Do I hear 3 You know, so the accompanying brain scans of the individuals showed 
that the area that was doing its thing when we ate that slippery fat was the orbital frontal cortex. This is an area involved in reward processing. And the OFC, the orbital frontal cortex, also reflected and, and predicted the participants' uh, bids on the milkshake. So uh, they thought, well, let's find out if this actually extends to food intake. So they invited the same participants to return to the lab for a free lunch of several curry dishes, also with varying fat content. Uh, unbeknownst to the participants, the researchers measured how much of each curry the participants ate, those whose OFCs were the most sensitive to fatty texture, yes, there was variability, were more likely to eat more of the high-fat curry. So again, showing the predictive value, ain't science wonderful. Um, I guess you probably knew that if you put a pat of butter in your Campbell's tomato soup, uh, people like it better. If you didn't, uh, that one's free from my grandma, and it works. <laughs> All right, our next short story is uh, just a really quick comment on the gold rush to create new and better anti-obesity uh, drugs. I had the uh, the semiglutide, right? You know, the uh, Ozempic and the Wigovi uh, agent, uh, guess, Montjaro. The problem here is that they need to be injected, right? But the supplies have plummeted. The diabetics are having trouble finding their drugs, and I expect that's going to keep up for the, um, for the, for the future. They're looking to, uh, so this is what Norvo Nordisk, who are the people who make Ozempic, are working on right now. They're working on an oral version of this that would possibly transform uh, that aspect, the weight control aspect of healthcare. So let's assume that they find them. Let's assume that in 17 years they manage not to weasel out of letting them go generic. What can we expect uh, in the light of a recent trial showing that Wygovi semiglutide uh, was able to reduce the risk of death from heart attack, stroke, and cardiovascular diseases by 20% in diabetics? Well, we'd expect the weight loss to reduce that risk. Uh, I don't know that it's actually anything more than the weight loss, but let's suppose that it's just about weight loss. If you were to to use Wygovi in high-risk individuals to prevent heart disease, uh, 63 people would need to be treated with it for over three years at a current combined cost of $1.1 million to prevent one cardiovascular death. So hmm, that's called the number needed to treat. And given the cost of these drugs, that is a disproportionate value for what we're actually able to get. What about almonds? Almonds can be part of a healthy weight loss diet. We've been talking about diabetes just now. I love almonds for diabetes because they increase your insulin sensitivity. They're also high in protein, but they are high in fat. Uh, so people who are trying to lose weight often don't uh, 
take them. But, you know, it turns out that because they're so good at suppressing appetite and improving insulin resistance, they may actually be, uh, be more beneficial than you expect. Albans are packed with vitamins and minerals, and they contain unsaturated fats, so that helps improve blood cholesterol levels. It also reduces inflammation. What's the dose? What's one serving of almonds? It's about 11 almonds. And they did a trial where people, uh, you know, this was a trial done in Australia where they used an almond-supplemented diet compared to a uh, another controlled uh, calorie diet. The calorie the calories were equi- equivalent in the two diets, and what they found was that both groups lost this, about the same amount of weight over the trial. But the almond group had statistically significant changes in their LDL and their very low LDL. These are the ones that get into your arteries and cause plaque. So not only are uh, almonds compatible, it really seemed to make a difference. Uh, What did they eat? Well, 15% of the participants' uh, diet was almonds, unsalted whole whole almonds with skins, or 15% carbohydrate-rich snacks like rice crackers or baked cereal bars. So those were the variations. And if you're looking for a snack, rather than buying one of those, you know, 100 calorie Rice Krispies bar things, uh, go ahead and chow down on some almonds. I find that they're five minutes later, you're really not hungry. And that's the whole point of a snack. If you must snack, then at least snack on something healthy. I don't know how many of you remember the movie As Good As It Gets. In As Good As It Gets, Jack Nicholson plays an older gentleman who becomes romantically involved with a younger woman, and naturally he breaks out the Viagra, Sidenafil. And there is a very funny scene where he has chest pain and is picked up by an ambulance and they ask him, are you taking Viagra? Because he's found in a somewhat compromising situation. And uh, he denies it. And then the ambulance guy says, you know, that can kill you if we give you nitrates while you're on Viagra. And uh, of course, he kind of gulps and fesses up. But Nonetheless, in Denmark, prescriptions of these phosphodiesterase-5 inhibitors have been given uh, quite a lot over the last 10 or 15 years to patients who were also taking oral nitrates for ischemic heart disease. And they've got 20 years of nationwide data because the Nordic countries have an uh, an integrated health medical record where everyone can read, every doctor can like look you up and take care of you with all of the information all the other doctors have put into the file. God, that would be awesome. Uh, so they said with it, if you'd used a uh, phosphodiesterate at all within 14 days prior to an outcome event, and they looked at 42,000 out, uh, outcomes and basically saw no difference in 
mortality, no difference in shock, no difference in stroke, fainting, or anything that could be identified as a drug-related cardiac event. So I guess that warning that's, as I recall, a black box warning, not that the FDA will withdraw a black box warning on the basis of Danish data, because we're very fussy about the provenance of our data at the FDA. Uh, We aren't going to comment on that further. Uh, Another one, uh, just to think about, if you have friends, uh, family members who have a sick child, this was a study looking at healthcare utilization by close family members. So they looked at uh, claims from a large, quote, large commercial insurance plan. They found 7,000 children with one of four life-threatening conditions, either severe prematurity, critical congenital heart disease, cancer, or progressive neurological impairment. And they matched them with about 1,900 control children, same ages, but without threatening conditions. So then they looked at siblings and parents, and they looked at composite measures of new diagnoses, number of prescriptions, and encounters. And what they found was that healthcare usage and encounters were about 60% higher in the family members of people who, of children who had one of these life-threatening diseases. And interestingly enough, it wasn't just worried parents taking the siblings in more. The level of higher usage was similar across the board from siblings, mothers, and fathers of the ill children. So I think the moral of the story is if you have a friend or a family member with a sick kid, they need your help so that they can meet their own health care needs. They may need some nagging or some reminding or some babysitting or some rides uh, to the doctor with the kid. Uh, we want to protect our families. And part of protecting our families goes beyond protecting a, a sick child, but protecting the whole dynamic of the family surrounding that sick child. Well, that's about all for this week's podcast. Please go to AskDrDawn.com for news about our future plans, or follow my tweets at at AskDRDawn. For now, this is Dr. Don saying so long and stay healthy. Ask Dr. Don is brought to you by Jiva Media. Production and editing by Charles Mansky. Music by John Scoville.